0: This is Fortune's Wheel, a podcast history of the late Middle Ages, and I'm Jonathan. Today, the House of Godwin. But first, let me urge each of you to hit the subscribe button on whatever podcast app you're using, and to share the show with others you know, and on your social media. Also, great stuff's happening on Patreon as well. In this Patreon series, we'll be following the goings-on of Wales, Scotland, Ireland, and Normandy, and of course others as William struggles with the fierce rebelliousness of the proud Anglo-Saxons he'd unseated in England. So if you're curious about the whole picture, you'll only find it on Patreon. Alright, here we go folks. Today's episode, episode 76, is entitled The Matriarch. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. As King William I of England made his return to England in December of 1067, there were rumors of a re-consolidation of power somewhere on that godforsaken island kingdom. Again, do, do these backward islanders not understand when they've been beaten? When they've been conquered? Well, no wonder. With earls like that Godwin guy, their king couldn't even control them. I mean, not like William could anyway. And as William's ship cut the channel waters, the fortified city of Exeter in southwestern England held secret meetings under the cloak of darkness and in the dim light of candles. A powerful lady sat at a table, men surrounding her, listening intently. One man stood and read a letter in a low tone. The candles flickered across each person, accentuating the stress wrinkles on their worn faces. It's been two years. But no one, no one wore them quite as much as the lady at the end of the table. Her mouth was a thin line, almost imperceptible, blending in with other wrinkles in the space between her nose and her turned-up chin. The letter was from her grandson. Her grandson's name was Godwin, her late husband's name. If only he were here, he would know what to do, and he would succeed. This upstart bastard boy from France would get his comeuppance without question. This, this, William, this man who invaded without provocation and killed her three sons. The reader's deep voice jolted her back to the room. Soon. The letter, from Godwin, eldest son of her second born, the former king of England, Almost immediately after the battle against the Duke of Normandy, she instructed them all to flee. Head to the port city of Dublin, she said. The House of Godwin, of which she instantly became the matriarch on that fateful October day two years before, still had contacts there. Very high contacts. In fact, the House of Godwin still commanded respect in many places outside of England, and she would no doubt be calling upon these contacts in due time. First, she sent her grandson, Godwin, with his two younger brothers, Edmund and Magnus, to ask for immunity under the King of Leinster. Most importantly, however, beyond the name and reputation of the House of Godwin, they were to bring large quantities of gifts to offer in exchange for the Irishman's protection, as well as enough to buy as large a mercenary force as they could. The House of Godwin was not finished with England quite yet. The letter, she learned, was exactly what she'd been hoping for. They were on their way back, with more than 50 ships packed with Irish and Norse warriors. With William away, the Godwins will come out and play. This lady at the table, Githa, allowed something so foreign to her by this time, it took her only a moment to recognize it. A smile, very slight, an upturn at the corners, nothing more, but a smile nonetheless. Well, that's how I imagine it, anyway. Githa was a special woman, for sure, especially for 11th century England. Well, 11th century anywhere, almost. She was connected, if you remember, to both Swain Forkbeard and Canute the Great by blood, as well. And, most notably at this point, her late husband, the incomparable Earl Godwin of Wessex. Yeah, Earl Godwin had been dead roughly 15 years or so as of late 1067. And in the current circumstances, if not King Harold II Godwinson, my best guess is, assuming the likes of Edmund Ironsides and Canute the Great were simply out of the question, which they were, Earl Godwin of Wessex was the only other person that might have saved England in those dark times after the Battle of Hastings. And the problem was, at this point, England had no such Earl Godwin, no such Canute the Great, and certainly no such Edmund Ironsides. The closest people to any of them at this point were also dead. Tostig Godwinson, who died at Stamford Bridge, and Leofwinna and Gerth Godwinson, who both died alongside their brother Harold at Hastings. Dark times indeed. But a new Godwin was on his way from Dublin with an impressive force of his own. Could he be the one to restore England to its rightful ruling family, the powerful Anglo-Saxon men of Wessex? Well, sadly, no. No, he couldn't. I feel like the return of the Godwin family at such a large force reinvading their homeland to free it from the oppressive yoke of a foreign conqueror seems like something that should be amped up a bit more like like it seems like something the annals should have had more information to report but alas no it it actually turns out to be something of a nothing burger sadly Godwin the grandson sailed up the Bristol Channel raided the coastal towns and villages a bit only to be repelled by some locals, whom they were initially attempting to liberate from Norman rule. From there, he sailed his navy to Somerset, across from Wales, only to be attacked by a force led by Ednoth the Staller, a man of King Edward's court and fairly wealthy leader in the area as well. And after a small but brutal skirmish, both sides fled, having left a great many of their own dead or dying on the battlefield, including that same Ednoth, as well as Magnus Godwinson. Godwin led raids across Cornwall before, well, hightailing it back to Dublin, basically. One brother short, but oh, so much richer than before he left. However, in the meantime, William, donning the regalia of his crown now, had already paid Exeter a visit. Mark Morris, in his book The Norman Conquest, The Battle of Hastings, and the Fall of Anglo Saxon England, wrote, "Inevitably, the matter was decided by violence. Exeter was a walled city, and on his arrival, William found the rebels manning the whole circuit of its ramparts. In a final attempt to induce a surrender, William ordered one of the hostages from Exeter to be blinded, in view of the walls; but," says Orderic, This merely strengthened the determination of the defenders. Indeed, according to William of Malmesbury, one of them staged something of a counter-demonstration by, get this, dropping his trousers and farting loudly in the king's general direction. End quote. Anybody else thinking of Monty Python here? Okay, so Morris continues, and uh, begin quote, "...the siege that followed was evidently hard-fought." Or Derrick says that for many days, William attempted to storm the city and undermine its walls. Quote, a large part of his army perished, adds the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. End quote. So long story short, after another two and a half weeks, Exeter finally fell due to either treachery or an actual collapsed wall. Either's possible, but the collapsed wall, just as Morris alluded to, could be metaphorical in a sense that it hearkens the divine intervention of the walls of Jericho. Maybe the treachery was the figurative collapse of the walls. Who knows for sure, but the fact remains that Exeter Fell and Githa, along with a huge group of wives of rebels, either off in Ireland at the moment or or also plodding in the southwestern hills and forests, made haste to an island in the Bristol Channel called Flatholm. I love what Morris does here, though. He... He pits the Norman chroniclers of William of Poitiers and, and or Derek Vitalis against the Anglo-Saxon chroniclers by pointing out that the Normans reported favorable offerings of peace, while the chronicles simply wrote, the king, quote, made fair promises to them and fulfilled them badly, end quote. But as Morris concluded, quote, the truth probably lies somewhere in the middle, but that the surrender was negotiated rather than dictated seems clear, End quote. While Githa was on this island of home, essentially in self-exile, she was intent on taking Exeter back. William, it's reported, struck deeper into Cornwall at this time in order to quell a minor uprising there, only to do so and pull back to attend to big things blowing up on the other side of the island. He left a Breton nobleman named Brian in charge of the region in and around Exeter. And it was Brian at William's behest who ordered the construction of several castles in the area, as well as many more Motten and Baileys on the outskirts. And as Githa continued to plot another attempt, William confiscated all remaining Godwin properties on the island, period, which at this point were pretty much centered on this part of the kingdom. Githa was now officially without income, which of course made things much harder. The problem with Godwin's failed invasion was absolutely nothing was accomplished here. Nothing. Nothing was accomplished, except for maybe getting a little bit richer and losing a brother. The thoughts going through Githa's mind must have been ones of frustration and exasperation. And these thoughts were only amplified by her recent fleeing of Exeter and loss of her remaining sources of income. It was crystal clear that Harold's boys were no Harold. Let me say that one again. It was crystal clear that Harold's boys were no Harold. Urging them on, they tried again the next year, as the waters warmed and the winds shifted again. Godwin, now only accompanied by his younger brother Edmund, sailed with an even larger force than before this time. Githa must have held much more anticipation upon hearing that there would be upwards of 65 ships full of mercenaries this time. Exeter would surely be hers again quite soon. She was, she was absolutely sure of it. Now, initially, they rammed their way into Devon, but eventually they were met on a formal field of battle against the very man William had put in charge in his absence, Brian of Brittany. Now, born a little bit about Brian here. Born in February of 1042, he was 24 years old when the Norman conquest of England kicked off, and he quickly offered his services to the neighboring Duke. Brian could smell the political winds shifting, and he knew he wanted to be on the wealthy side of him. He'd grown up hearing about and even witnessing the exploits of Duke William of Normandy, and Brian knew a winning horse when he saw one. And it also helped that he had an inn with the powerful Duke. His brother, Alain Leroux, or Alan the Red, was married into William's family, making Brian, really, second cousins to William, in a sense. And he already owned land in Rouen, as well, this this Alan of... Alan the Red, excuse me. It's quite likely that Brian, Alan the Red, and their younger brother, Alan the Black were all fighting alongside William at the Battle of Hastings as well, as records attest to Alan the Red being a part of William's contingent, which was sweeping up through Dover and into Cambridge in late 1066. Now we find Brian out in the southwest, across the rolling hills outside of Northam, along the northern coast of Devon. Godwin and his brother Edmund stood with their Irish and Norse mercenaries, representing all that was left of the mighty House of Godwin. Honestly, it was, it was pitiful, really. There are no surviving records, if there were even to be, any to begin with, of, of the size of both armies, but it might be safe to say that Bryans could have just edged out the mercenary forces from Dublin, mainly due to William's recent decree of mandatory military duty by Englishmen at the King's Notice. That said, Godwin and Edmund were sitting on a stout lot themselves. if you think about it, ships in those days probably held, what, anywhere from 40 to 60 warriors on each ship. And to just consider the minimums here, let's let's say that 40 warriors were on each of, say, 60 ships. You're talking 2,400 soldiers coming from Dublin. If we consider maximums, then it's more like 60 warriors on each of 70 ships. And then you'd have something like 4,200 warriors. My guess is somewhere in between, so we can safely assume that Godwin and Edmund commanded a force of about 3,000, I think it's safe to say. And Brian of Brittany probably had a smidge more than that, owing to the home field advantage, and again, the mandatory military duty decree that William had just put in place recently. We can't also forget that Brian also had a large number of Norman and Breton knights at his disposal as well, which could easily shift the balance in his favor. Remember, these Irishmen and these Norse uh, Vikings that he brought over, these were pretty much all foot soldiers. There were very few cavalry that he brought with him. However, these Bretons and certainly these Normans were were, uh, very skilled on the horse. Now, Godwin and Edmund's forces retreated back to their ships at a village called Appleton, but they found their ships were beached. The tide, apparently, had pulled out while they were away, and they were now stranded for several hours until the tide lifted their boats again. Kind of reminds me of the Battle of Clontarf. Now, Brian smelled blood in the water, and he attacked the invaders' shield wall relentlessly. And we're like talking... For hours at a time. The shield wall, we're told, never collapsed. But, like Hastings, there were just simply too many casualties to maintain the defensive structure for too long. And nearing nightfall, the tide flowed back in and the mercenaries were able to escape. It's said that some 1,700 warriors fell that day on just one side of the battle. Which, of course, was Godwin's side. We're told that's about half of their total force, making our earlier estimations fairly accurate. The Battle of Northam resulted in a resounding victory for Brian of Brittany. As for him and his brothers, they would all enjoy wealth and prosperity under William's rule in England. In fact, Alan the Red, again, Brian's brother, would become the first Earl of Richmond within about a year no doubt bolstered by his little brother's deeds in southwestern England, as well as his own deeds, much closer to William's side, in Yorkshire in the events to come. Now, 1069, however, would also sound the death knell for the House of Godwin. Well, kind of. See, in the immediate aftermath of this failed second invasion, the Godwinsons weren't exactly done with trying. It just didn't amount to much. Godwin and Edmund headed to Flatholm, picked up Grandma Githa and the rest of the house, and they sailed through the treacherous waters of the Channel, enclosed on either side by hostile Normans, who would love nothing more than to catch the remnants of the previous king's family, to the only home they could think of, Denmark. Now remember, Githa was one half Danish through her father's side, and also the aunt of its current king, Swain Estresen. Loaded with loot and treasure, their small fleet made it to their destination and offered King Swain II almost whatever he wanted. But Swain Estersen had been on the fence about inserting himself into into the Anglo-Norman War. He was actually enjoying the relative peace that was gifted to him upon the death of his nemesis, King Harald Hardrada of Norway a couple years earlier at Stamford Bridge. Now we can't forget the impact Hardrada's death had on Denmark here and thus on this Anglo-Norman war. They'd been in an on-again, off-again cold war, sometimes I suppose hot war, for about 20 years at that point, up to 1066. And with Hardrada slain on the battlefield in September of 1066, well, King Swain II of Denmark had some elbow room with which to breathe and begin rebuilding his treasury and clout. Even in the 11th century, peace can be addictive, Kind of, it, it can be an addictive kind of drug when you've been high on war for as long as Denmark and Norway were. Now, standing before King Swain II must have been both a massive relief, as well as one amounting to nothing short of humiliation on a whole new level. Githa and her grandsons pleaded, no doubt, for intervention. A familial favor, a chance for greatness an opportunity to reconnect Canute's long-lost North Sea Empire by pulling together two headless behemoths that were England and Norway. However they spun it, Swain wasn't having it. With Swain's refusal to throw his hat into the ring, the House of Godwin was effectively bankrupt in every way but financially. And it would be these finances finances gathered and developed and collected over the course of decades between the Danish conquest of England in the 1010s through the reign of Canute the Great, then through two more rambunctious youths who played king for a few years through King Edward's reign beyond that and passing from father to sons to grandsons down to Githa and her leftovers in the court of the King of Denmark in the year 1069. Right on the heels of English villages, ports, and churches that were just raided in the last two years. It would be these very finances that would connect the House of Godwin through the centuries to someone England recently lost. On the next episode, we go from one indomitable matriarch to another. I can't wait to tell you about it.